Well, a very large part of our human nature is to wish that things were better. But it's not always clear how to make them better. Or maybe we want to change, but it's not always clear how to change. James is writing to churches and he's teaching them that that life is best lived, as we've learned before, with wisdom from above, wisdom from God, which will lead us to a life of peace and righteousness. That doesn't mean that we're not going to have trouble, but overall, life will be better. We'll be able to deal with life. Yet, he's been teaching us that humanity is not prone to wisdom from above, but we are prone to earthly wisdom. And earthly wisdom leads us to envy, selfish ambition, and ultimately, that leads us to dissatisfaction. Now, the churches and the people that James is writing to may or may not be aware. And I say that because some people, they're not aware of what's going on, and other people fully know what's going on, and they don't, they're like, well, don't bother me with the facts. I'm going to do what I want to do. But what's happening in these churches is earthly wisdom seems to be ruling many of their lives. And it makes sense that if earthly wisdom is ruling the lives of the people in the church, then what's ruling the church? Earthly wisdom. How serious was it? Well, let's go back to verse 4 of chapter 4 here. And remember um, this for verse 8. Keep this in mind. We're going to cover verses 7 through 10 tonight, but we want to just ease kind of into them. He said, Adulterers and adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world, and the idea is it, it values the world's ideas over God's values, is enmity with God. We talked about that making us double-minded. Whoever therefore wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. So he says, you've been an adulteress or an adulterer to God. You've cheated on God. You have been disloyal to God. Chapter 3 and the beginning of chapter 4 was, was difficult to hear. As the Lord, and it's the word of God, so it's James writing, but the Lord's really guiding him. And the Lord addresses the motives that drive our speech and our lives. And a lot of this, we said, has to do with our desire for significance and, and a strong desire to, to get what we want. Yet, for a follower of Jesus, we become, when we put our trust in Jesus through faith and trust, we become children of God. And as we develop a proper identity in Christ, while before you were looking for significance, when you develop a proper identity in Christ, you realize you are significant. You are significant in the eyes of God. So James is calling people to return to God, and as they return to God, to experience the grace of change, the grace of transformation, and the grace of contentment. We covered and left off at verse 6 last week. He said, but he, God, or the Holy Spirit, gives more grace. Therefore, he says, and he quotes Proverbs 3.34 from the Old Testament, God resists the proud, 
But notice this. But he gives grace to the humble. Keep that in mind there. The grace of God teaches us to rest in Christ and to trust in God instead of trusting in ourselves, instead of trusting in our world, instead of trusting in our government. Why? Why do we need to trust in God so we can flourish in the Christian life? And verse 6 and 7 have a, a call to humility, and so does verse 10. Well, why is this so important? We just read it right here in verse 6. What does it say? God resists the proud. Some verses say God opposes the proud. Just a quick show of hands. How many of you want God to resist you? No takers on that one? How many of you want God to oppose you? Yeah, yeah, not too many takers on that one either. Some of you are thinking, okay, what, what is the alternative? Well, the alternative was right here in verse 6, that God gives grace to the humble. That's the alternative. And in verse 10, he says, humble yourself and he will lift you up. So the alternative is to God resisting you is to humble ourselves. And as, as we move along, we will see that it's very important that we are humble. Now, humility is not limited to shy and quiet people. I think that's sometimes what people think. They're like, oh, I'm very humble because I'm shy and I'm quiet. That's not what means humble. It's, it's how you are before God. We'll talk about that in a little bit. Humility is for all types of people. And so the title of our message tonight might seem odd to you, but it's the power of humility. Here in this text, we see a classic biblical tension between uh, divine promises, what God says he will do, and human responsibility. In other words, what the Word of God calls sanctification, in a simple sense, the process of us becoming more like Jesus, the work of the Holy Spirit in our hearts, it's not instant, nor is it effortless. It's going to require God's sovereignty, God's power, and our own human responsibility. Let's think of it this way. It's like a two-sided coin. On one side of the coin, you see God has written a message to you. And it says, here's my grace. And my grace is here to help you. And you flip it over and it says, you must obey my commands. So God helps us obey his commands, yet we have the responsibility to obey them. We might put it this way. We've said this before. The grace of God demands a response from us. And for any follower of Jesus, this is an important component of understanding and experiencing the grace of God. Once again, we turn to a passage that we really probably need to Mark in our Bibles, if you're taking notes, jot it down. You have to know this one, Philippians 12, 2, 12 and 13. The Apostle Paul says, Therefore, my beloved, 
as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out, not work for, work out what you already have, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Verse 13, why do we do that? For or because it's God who works in you both to will and to do for his good pleasure. Some of your verses say for his good purpose. So, so how do God's people experience his grace and his help and not his opposition? Well, verses 7 through 10, which is a lot of work to be done tonight, guys, it, it, it explains it to us how God changes us. Verse 7, he says, Therefore, very important what comes next. You might want to circle it in your Bible. Submit to God. Another version says, Be humble then before God. Therefore, since there's more grace, submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Now, I know that the word submission is a nuclear bomb in our culture. All of a sudden, for so many people, there's just pictures of abusive husbands just flashing before their eyes. That's often what comes to mind. So let's be 100% clear. Let's draw the line in the sand. Let's make sure everybody understands this. That idea of some overbearing ogre demanding submission from his wife is horrific. We say in many instances in the Christian life, to desire something is okay, to demand something is not. It is horrific, it is shameful, and it is 100% inconsistent with the Christian life. Was I clear? Was I clear? 100% inconsistent with the Christian life. Ephesians says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church, even giving his life for her. Men, husbands, you die. That's it. That's it. You don't go around like a peacock puffing your chest out. Me, man, you woman, you do what I say. She should just go, no, you die. That's really the way it goes. So that submission, way of thinking submission, is wrong. So, leaving that to the side, what is James talking about? What does he mean? Here, submission seems to mean, and, and you, know, you get all this stuff, you've got to look at, at, at all the verses around it and, and see what he's trying to say. Submission seems to mean ordering our lives under God's authority and God's will is what demonstrates our humility. I mean, it's that simple. We could say, it is the surrendering our will to God's will that leads to obedience to the word of God. 
Friends, an important part of being a follower of Jesus is putting ourselves under the wise rule and will of our King, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, if you're not a follower of Jesus, glad you're with us. Or you're struggling to obey the word of the Lord, I'm glad you're with us too. The essence of unbelief is a failure to submit to God's will. That's why sometimes we refer to ourselves as unbelieving believers. For a follower of Jesus, we need to do this. People say we want God's will for our lives, then we must submit to God's will. That's the only way we're going to realize it. And if you're not a follower of Jesus, God's will is that you would, Jesus said, repent and believe, repent, turn to God, believe, put your trust in Jesus Christ, because if you don't do that, the scripture teaches, Jesus taught, the apostles taught, you will not go to heaven. Now you say, really? Is that really true? Well, let's read the Apostle Paul, Romans 8, 7. He says, because the carnal mind is enmity, some versions say hostile, against God, for it is not subject to the law of God, nor indeed can be. The Holman Christian Standard Bible puts Romans 8, 7 this way. For the mindset of the flesh, that's the sinful nature, is hostile to God because it does not submit to God's law, for it is unable to do so. It just can't do it. We need God's help. Now, some of you are like, don't worry, Pastor Jim, I'm good. I'm very religious. I'm good. I'm good. Uh, do you ever meet people like that? I meet people like that quite often. I kind of, you know, pry a little bit here and there, and, and they're like, I'm good. I'm religious. Romans 10, 3. For they, now he's been talking about religious Jews and religious people in general, we could say. For they being ignorant, ooh, being ignorant of God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own righteousness. You know the person who says they're a good person? They're seeking to establish their own righteousness. Have not submitted to the righteousness of God. So James says it, the Apostle Paul says it, in 1 Peter 5, the Apostle Peter says it, they all teach the hard-to-hear truth that you may think you're obeying God, you may think you're right with God, you may think God is okay with you, you may think you're serving God, but you're not, but you're not. The good news is true biblical change and a life pleasing to God can be accomplished. People say, oh, you can never do it. No, it can be accomplished by submitting to God and humbly repenting, humbly turning to him. Now, this is not passive. I think a lot of times people think that the, the, the Christian life is just so passive. You know, let go and let God. I mean, just like, 
I, I'm like, what are you talking about? It's like the people who have the bumper sticker, God is my co-pilot. I'm like, well, I'm not getting in your car, man. I want, him, I want Jesus to be the pilot, man. I don't, <laughs> I don't want that. We have all these silly expressions that we have. It's not passive. You see, we confess our sins, true, but that's active. And even more active is we internalize the word and commands of God and apply the principles of the word of God to our lives. You say, okay, that's fine. What in the world does that mean? What in the world does that mean? All right, let's go to work. Ready? Let's go to work. You're at your job. It is your job. The, the scriptures tell us to, to obey those in authority over us. You go to your job and you operate within the values of the organization. You might say, I'm not doing that. I'm not doing that. I'm not doing what they say. I do what I want. I, I, I check Facebook for, you know, 50 minutes an hour, take long lunches, don't account, not accountable for my time, not doing any work. Nobody really knows. They're not taking care of me. I, I, I don't have to obey that. Okay, fine. That's fine. You, you can say that. But don't say you're submitted to God because you're not. You're not. You're submitted to you. Let's go to marriage. Oh, Pastor Jim, you're really meddling tonight. We're really not liking this. Let's go to marriage. A husband and wife agree on something. How do they submit to one another? The scripture tells us also in Ephesians to submit to one another. How do they submit to one another? They do it by sticking with the plan or changing it together. You say, I ain't doing that. I do what I want. It's fine. You can tell me you're doing what you want. Don't tell me you're submitted to God because you're not. You're not. You're submitted to yourself. Now, do we follow sinful instructions? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. But what you, what you don't like doesn't make it sinful. <laughs> so we have to remember that. It says in Acts 5.29, we obey God rather than men. And that is the truth. But very rarely do you come across that where you're like, this is just so totally sinful, I can't do it. Let's go back to work. Let's say you doubt the wisdom of your boss. Now, in most cases, you can ask your boss for an explanation. I wouldn't keep asking over and over again. That's probably not a good way to stay employed. And maybe if you're asking with the idea of wanting to be helpful, that's a good thing. Oh, just a word to the wise. Always remember when you're asking people questions, timing is very important. <laughs> you know, it's, it's like, you know, maybe uh, people who are married, you know, like when you're trying to, you're running late, you're trying to get the kids in the car, it's probably not the good time for the, for the serious discussion. It's probably not that. But, but we, we ultimately... If we are submitted to God, we do what our company tells us to do. 
Same thing's true with the government. A lot of people are really questioning some of the things about the government right now. You read the beginning of Romans 13, and they ask us certain things. They, they, the, the, God says that they are his instrument of righteousness. You may, you may not like the government. There are corrupt governments. But as long as we're not called to disobey God, we obey the government. So right now, the government says we've got to stand a certain distance apart from people. I see a, I see a store. I go in. They say, you've you got to wear a mask. You've got to stay this far away from people. Okay? They're saying we're using government recommendations. Well, if I want to go in, I've got to do it. Now, when it comes to church, people say, well, they can't regulate the church. Well, they're, they're trying to regulate the health system. They're not telling us we can't meet. If they tell us we can't meet, if they tell us we can't worship God, that's a whole nother thing. Now, you can, we can get into, the, into a, a side conversation on if it's a temporary thing or a long-term thing. But there's a lot of things we don't want to obey the government on just because we don't want to do it. You know, just plenty of things we don't want to do. We don't want to pay our taxes, so we cheat on them. We don't believe we should do this, so we cut corners here. We cut corners there. God says, you're not as submitted to me as you think you are. You see, we have to remember that the people that God gives authority to will answer for that authority. They will answer for what they have been given to do, and they have a responsibility to do the best that they can do. So hopefully we can begin to see eye to eye with people. We can begin to see eye to eye with the, with the word of God and, and our boss and our spouse and, our, and our, our government and stuff like that. But see, here's the real test of humility. When it's not sin, will we be humble and will we humbly obey? And here's the trick to that. You can obey without being humble. And so that's a real hard issue that we all have to look at. And any of us who've had kids, we know it. <laughs> we, we, they do what we say, but man, they're spitting nails doing it. <laughs> that's not humility. And we can do it as grown-ups. So let's be honest. Letting go of our sinful desires, our stubborn wills, and our harmful pride is not as easy as it sounds. So, to help us, James gives us a series of commands. The first one is at the end of verse 7. He says this, Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Let's think of it this way. Command. Resist the devil. Promise. And he will flee from you. Logically speaking, if we want to put ourselves under God's authority, we have to leave 
being under the devil's authority or being under our own authority. Now, people joke about the devil. It's interesting, uh, but it's no laughing matter. Many say they, they don't believe in the devil. When anybody asks me if they don't believe in the devil, I go, do you believe in evil incarnate? And they always go, yes, yes. And how many of our shows right now on television, and boy, if you, if you have Netflix or Prime or any of these other things, you, you look at them and you're like, how many of the shows are really about evil? I mean, for a society that says it doesn't believe in evil, it sure has a lot of shows about evil. For a society that says, oh, basically all people are good, it sure has a lot of shows about people who are not basically good. In the Bible, and the scripture is clear, there, there is a devil. And we see that his or evil's big strategy is to separate people from God. That's the big strategy. Yet, James assures us that if you're a follower of Jesus, that both you and I can resist the devil. What does this word resist mean? It means to stand against. It means to oppose his work. And so James is teaching us that followers of Jesus are empowered for this. Now, this does not mean we tempt temptation. This does not mean we go stand in the middle of temptation. It's just like, oh, well, I want to get in the middle of temptation so I can resist it. No, a lot of times we're actually told to flee it, to run from it. Often it means that we will be called by God to make good moral choices in a very immoral world. Plus, and this is so important, submitting to God is resisting the devil. Did you hear that? You come across some sin you want to do, and you say, no, God, Jesus died for me. I'm not going to do that. That submission to God is what? It is resisting the devil. Submitting to God weakens the power of sin in our lives and that is something that we need to know and we need to live out daily. I'm not saying it's easy, but we can do it. Why isn't it easy? Because a lot of times we try and obey or resist the devil, resist evil, resist our fleshly impulses in our own strength. And perhaps you've noticed this, that when you try to do it in your own strength, practically speaking, for many of us, the temptation actually gets stronger. If we don't bring God into the situation, if we're just like, I'm not going to do this, I'm not going to do this, I'm not going to do this, the temptation gets stronger. And the more we give in, the harder and harder it becomes to resist. Why? Because the lion 
is on the prowl. And he's hard to get away from. 1 Peter 5.8 Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary the devil walks about like a roaring lion, seeking whom or seeking anyone he may devour. So there's a proper balance with, with this. We don't want to, on the one hand, ignore his work. And on the other hand, we don't want to be obsessed with his work. We, don't want, we want to have a, a healthy respect, if you will, but we don't want to live in fear. Years ago, I hear less of it now, but maybe I just travel in different circles these days. But I can remember years ago, people talking about just the, the devil of everything, you know, you know, oh my gosh, I got the, the demon of alcohol and the, and, the, and the demon of eating Twinkies and, and, the, and, the, and the demon of this and the demon of that. This, years ago, if you're older, you remember uh, this guy, Flip Wilson, used to have this routine with this character called Geraldine. And he'd go, the devil made me do it. And, and people would be so obsessed with the devil, blaming him for everything. When it comes to this, to me, the key verse is 1 Corinthians 10, 13. No temptation has overtaken you except such as common to man. Means, like, it's not, you're like, oh, I'm the first person who's ever encountered this. No. But God is faithful. In your temptation, remember, just say, God, I know you're faithful. Who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able. Sometimes it will seem very close to the edge. But with the temptation will also make the way of escape that you may be able to bear it. What does that mean? Well, as someone who's done a lot of stuff with young people over the years, I tell them this. Picture yourself in the midst of a dark, dark movie theater and the temptation comes. Look for the exit sign. You can always see that exit sign glowing right there and flee to it, run to it. God will always provide for you an exit sign. Now, verse 8 is so important for anyone who has drifted from God or is in the process of drifting right now and you know it. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Well, let's start with, let's start with draw near to God. In Old Testament thinking, which we said James does a lot of because he's an early Bible writer in the New Testament, he often has to do with uh, attending worship. Here, I think more so it's for a follower of Jesus. It's that we repent, we seek God, and we submit to him. Repent, seek God, turn to God, seek him, and submit to him. God, I'm going to do what it is that you want me to do. And we will begin to see change in our lives. Now, this is not a salvation verse. This is a restoration verse. It's not about 
the demon of whatever. This is about restoration. This is for followers of Jesus who have drifted, are drifting, or who have fallen away. This is the story of the prodigal son whose father is always ready to welcome his child back home. Now, if you know the story, you know that he repented. He was lying with the pigs. And then all of a sudden, he realized he was lost. He said, my goodness, my, my father's servants have better lives than I have right now. So he realized he was in need. And what did he do? He made his move back towards God, back towards his father. Now notice carefully what James says here. Draw near to God, command, and he will draw near to you, promise. So we are to draw near to God, and God says, if you do that, I will draw near to you. You move towards me, he says, and you'll realize that I'm moving towards you. There is a huge problem with this that exists within our hearts. We want it reversed. We want God to draw near to us, and then we say, well, if God would draw near to me, then I would draw near to him. But that's not the way it works. That's called feelings. That's like saying, God, if I feel you, I will obey you. But if I don't feel you, then I'm not going to. God says, that's not the way I operate. You come near to me. How do we do that? The word of God and prayer. You come near to me, and I will come near to you. You seek my presence. You humble yourself. You obey me. And if you do that, you will experience me. But you must move towards me. Now, the fact that you want to move towards God shows you that he's already at work in you. Remember Philippians 2, 12, and 13. While repentance, or turning back to God, seems to be in view here, it seems to me, based on the entirety of James's letter, that there's actually maybe a little bit more going on here. So we, we come near to God in both private and public worship. We come near to him. We fight off the evil one in, in Bible reading, in prayer, we, we come near to God in fellowship and, or getting together with other followers of Jesus and in serving the Lord. We should seek opportunities to grow in our faith. We do need to learn more about the Lord and from the Lord, but let me put an asterisk on that. You, we need to be careful of the source. A lot of the sources are off. We need to seek his help. In other words, drawing near to God takes 
deliberate effort. It's going to take deliberate effort. Because here's the reality. We do not drift into intimacy with God. Have you noticed that? It's not something we drift into. We don't drift into holiness. It's all a combination of the grace of God and our grace-motivated effort. It doesn't just fall out of the sky. God wants us to come to him in faith, desiring us, that, that we desire to meet with him and to obey him. And he says, if you do that, I'm going to show up. That's grace. Because a lot of times when you're coming to him, you're coming to him having just sinned. God says, I will show up. It's a neat verse in, in Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 7. Moses says this, For what great nation is there that God is so near to it as the Lord our God is to us? For whatever reason we may call upon him. You see, Moses realized what an incredible blessing the people of God had and the people of God have in the fact that we can draw near to God. This is something that he does for his children. He allows us to draw near to him and he will draw near to us. Now let's look at the second half of verse 8. If you read ahead, you were probably like, I hope he skips this part. This part is just ridiculous. It's, it, it seems demeaning. It's shocking. I can't even believe he said it. He says this, Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Remember, double-minded, we said, wasn't a good thing. As odd as this verse may sound, I, I, I'm going I'm to make a big claim here. This half of a verse is really a weekend seminar on biblical change. This half a verse, I won't give you the whole weekend seminar, don't worry. This, this half a verse is sheer gold. Here, James is very blunt because he needs to be. They have seriously departed from the godly attitudes and behavior that God wants from his people. They have departed from God himself, and they don't even seem to see it. So he's got to be blunt. He's got to shock them. So James, don't forget, writing under the inspiration and the guidance of the Holy Spirit, calls them sinners and double-minded. Literally double-souled. Not like, oh, wow, you got, a, you got twice the brain power or you got twice the soul. No, you're, you're split. Here the Lord is calling all of them. And let us not think that he's not talking to us. Now, I understand it's in varying degrees. 
but he's calling all of us to a reorientation to God and to his ways and to his will. James calls them sinners. Sinners. Something the world does not want to hear and something the church has either in many places thrown out or it's said in passing and the people don't want to hear it at all. Why? Because the church is worldly. So the people who are not Christians don't want to hear that they're sinners and neither do the people who say that they are Christians. I don't mind hearing that I'm a sinner because it's the truth, but also it makes the cross of Christ that much sweeter to me. The world objects to the term sinners because they like to think of themselves as good people. While the church, a lot of times, they don't want to hurt people's feelings. Or they want to make people feel good about themselves. Or they just assume that people know that we are sinners, that we do stuff that's not pleasing to God, or we don't do stuff what he wants us to do. Or the, or the church just glosses over it. You know how he's like, well, we're all sinners, man. What's, what are you going on about this for? We're all sinners. not a big deal. Yet, when we are aware of the holiness of God, when we are aware and think about and see the purity of God, we should stand in awe and incredible love of Jesus, who was known as the friend of sinners. <laughs> you see, that's part of the wonder of God, is that he would be a friend of sinners. That's why being told you're a sinner gives you the possibility, you're told you're a sinner and being willing to turn to God gives you a possibility of being a friend of Jesus. Jesus James also calls them double-minded, or again, could be double-souled. Now, back in chapter 1, verse 8, it described, being double-minded, described a, an inconsistent, wavering faith. Does that sound good? How'd you like it if you came into church one Sunday in the church and the pastor gets up and says, you know, I think you all have an inconsistent, wavering faith. Now, in some places, they would go, amen, <laughs> we do. God help us. Other people would just get up and walk out. Like, I'm not going to listen to this. I don't want to be told this stuff. I want to be told how wonderful I am. Here in chapter 4, it's a little different. It refers to a person, as we saw in verse 4, who tries to be a close friend of the world's values and God's value at the same time. What is it? Here, James is saying that a double-minded person 
is a person of a divided allegiance, of a divided loyalty. And as we saw last week in verse 5, that the Lord will not tolerate that in his people. Double-minded people lack integrity. They totally lack integrity. Why? Because they pursue two things at the same time that cannot be pursued at the same time. They pursue the service of God and the service of self. And so they, so they, are, they lack integrity. And the reality of the matter is this. When we come to Christ, we say that we are no longer subject to the penalty of sin. So if you put your trust in Christ, you can tonight. We're no, subject, we're no longer subject to the penalty of sin. But now as followers of Jesus, we're no longer subject to the power of sin. It, sin does no longer have power of us. When we get to heaven, we'll be away. We'll, there'll be no more presence of sin. But for now, there is a pull inside a follower of Jesus. We're, we're being pulled in different directions. There is going on in our hearts a battle of kingdoms. There is a war between our spirit, what we know is right, and our flesh, our desires, what we want. There is a war between the ways of God and the ways of man. What a battle between what God wants for us and what we want for ourselves. Once again, the enemy's goal in the battle is to pull us away from our allegiance to God. How does he do it? He pulls us into our allegiance to ourselves and into our allegiance to this world. That's how he does it. It's a simple battle plan. It's been going on for, since the beginning of time. Well, what's the result? What's the result if we don't fight, if we don't resist, if we give in? We end up becoming double-minded and unstable sinners. But... Change begins when we admit that to God. When we humbly come to God and say, I know there is a war within me. I know it. And I know that I am incapable of fighting this war without your help. And so James paints for us really an Old Testament picture. He says, cleanse your hands. Well, we do stuff with our hands, right? So what is he saying? Cleanse or change or clean up your conduct and purify your hearts. Change, if you will, your motivations. Change what makes you tick. True change happens 
as we, in humility and sorrow over our sin, ask the Lord to forgive us and to change us. And at the moment of truth, we say, God, I'm going to submit to your will. Once again, the word for the beginning stage is repentance. Turning from our sin, from our world, from ourself, to desire to live like Jesus and for Jesus. Now, I could talk about this for a very, very long time, but I'm not going to. Instead, I'm going to refer you, and if you don't have a way to take notes and you want to email us, that's okay. We'll email you the link. I want to refer you uh, to something you can hear uh, uh, more about this on a message on our website called True Change Through Godly Sorrow. True Change Through Godly Sorrow, 2 Corinthians 7, 8 through 11, and you could look it up. It's, we did it in 2016, or you can just look it up on our website under messages or resources and, and look it up under 2 Corinthians. True change through godly sorrow. So James is teaching us that a goal for us, for true biblical change, is an internal cleanup in our hearts that results in external cleanups or external changes with our hands, what we do. So let's look for a second at purify your hearts. What, what does it mean to purify your heart? It means to, to realign yourself to God and to his word. And the only way you're going to realign yourself to God and his word is you've got to be in his word. You're doing it right now. And, and how does that work? You let the word of God reveal to you your sin, but don't stop there. You also let the word of God reveal to you that you have been given by God the power to change. Then with God's help, and this is important, know you have it. K-N-O-W. Know you have it. Cleanse your hands. Change your behavior. You go, I can't do this. With God's help, I'm telling you, you can. You can. So first, we draw near to God. Second, we admit our sin. Third, we are empowered by the Word of God and the Holy Spirit. And then we are energized to change and be more like Jesus if we're willing. God's part is He will empower us to change. Our part is the desire and to actually change. Now, James has been blunt, hasn't he? Now, this James is going to be blunt. Some of you are like, no, your name is Pastor Jim. Well, my real name is James. 
Can I call you James? You can if I can call you mommy. You know that one, right? Only my mother calls me James. Repentance of attitude or repentance of words with no real heartfelt desire to change is not repentance. You will see no change because your heart has not repented. It has been lip service. Change happens when our hearts have been changed first. Just as James taught us that faith works, heartfelt repentance is what changes the way that we live. And if we fake it, things will probably get worse. So now let's go back to the bluntness of the Apostle James. Verse 9. Lament. Some words say, some versions say grieve, others be miserable, others be afflicted. Lament and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned or let it be changed to mourning and your joy to gloom or sorrow. Kenneth Wiest, uh, love, love his, the, his, his paraphrase. It's an expanded translation. He, he translates it this way. He's, a, he's an expert linguist. He says, he translates it this way. Be sorrowful and distressed and grieve and weep audibly, parentheses, over your sins. Let your laughter be turned to sadness and your joy to gloominess. Now, right about now, some of you are like, like Pastor Jim, that is not positive, uplifting, and encouraging at all. Actually, it totally is. It totally is. This is a picture of true repentance that leads to true change. This is not the joyless Christian life. This is the path to joy. In other words, there is a time for deep remorse and regret over our sin. There is a time for true heartfelt sorrow in our hearts. I could give you examples from my own life, but I would just start to cry. So I'll give you biblical examples. Peter denied the Lord. And it says that he wept bitterly. What does that mean? He was so sad and so ashamed that he had betrayed Jesus, that he wept bitterly. In 1 Corinthians chapter 5, the Apostle Paul told the Corinthians, you need to mourn your sin. You need to mourn over it. 
You need to cry over it. Why? Because like so many people in our churches these days, and so many of us can be, they had become so casual about their sin. Friend, remember, it was our sin that nailed him to a tree. And so there is a place for bitter weeping over our sin. And here James speaks like an Old Testament prophet with wording used similar to the coming judgment of God if you don't change, if you're not sorrowful, if you don't mourn, if you don't lament, if you don't have a heartfelt repentance, you're not going to change. And if you don't, he is coming and he is coming in judgment. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 6 says this, For whom the Lord loves, he chastens. Many versions say, Whom the Lord loves, he disciplines and scourges every son whom he receives. Friend, let me warn you of this. Take it from someone who has experienced this. In many points in my life, and some of those points, it still hurts. Too often, we don't repent when we should. When we know God is telling us to stop, or we know God is telling us to turn to Him, to repent, and we don't, so God intervenes. He intervenes to get us to look at our sin, to get us to come to him and to repent. And often it can be so very, very, very painful because those whom he loves, he disciplines. When we go off the rails, he will yank us back on to the tracks if he has to. He will gently say, come back, come back, come back. It's like a child running to the street. Come back, come back, come back. And there comes a moment when you yank that kid by the neck before he gets hit by a car and you say, I'm yanking you and I'm punishing you. I'm what might seem like severe to you, but I do this because I love you. But beating yourself up forever because of what you did is also sinful because it is a failure to believe that God forgives and God restores. It doesn't mean it still might not hurt. Some things that God has hurt me with, I'm glad he did because I'm like, I ain't going back there. No way. For a follower of Jesus, repenting is a lifestyle. Now, some people would say, oh, that sounds awful. That sounds terribly awful because they're only looking at one side of the coin. When you say repenting is a lifestyle and you only focus on your sin, that is miserable. But what happens when you flip the coin over? 
What does it say on the other side? He gives more grace. And that's a joyous life. This is it. Loved ones, please hear me on this. This is it. God wants us and God welcomes us to be constantly and consistently asking for more grace. That's why verse 6 should be circled in your Bible and underlined in asterisks. Let me say it again. God wants us. God wants you. God welcomes you to be constantly asking him for more and more and more grace. The cross of Christ, as we said, was necessary because of our sin, because of your sin, because of my sin. If the whole world was perfect, Jesus still would have had to die on the cross for me. And I know that, and that's the way we all need to think. Why did Jesus have to die on the cross for our sins? Because God doesn't wink at our sin. God doesn't sweep it under the carpet like we do. The cross of Christ, we look at it, and it should make us stop laughing and weep. Isn't it amazing? We sin. We look at the cross of Christ. I try so hard to get you who are watching online, the people who come to our services, to look at the cross of Christ so we weep over our sin and at the same time see the love and grace of God and say, if he would do that for me, I will do anything for him. But how often... We look at the cross of Christ and we're indifferent. Somebody tells us a sad story and we weep. We watch a movie and we weep. Today, the Lord Jesus Christ invites all of us to come to the cross and weep. But once again, don't just stay there weeping. Because of the cross of Christ, more grace, greater grace, greater than our sin is also possible. Praise the Lord. This is how we get to true joy. We face the reality of our sin. We confess it. The scripture says we are cleansed by the blood of Jesus and we get new mercy. Verse 10 says, Humble yourself in the sight of the Lord, and he will lift you up. Another version says, Humble yourselves in, in the sight of the or before the Lord, and he will exalt you. So we've come full circle. Remember the second half of verse 6 God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. It seems, as we said last time, that some of the people James was writing to wanted recognition and to look good. But James says, no, it's the grace of 
God that lifts you up. You don't need to lift yourself up. The grace of God will lift you up. Let me ask you a question. Do you want the grace of God? You say, of course I want the grace of God. Then you must humble yourself before the Lord. You say, how do I do that? We acknowledge that we are all spiritually needy. We give ourselves to the Lord and we ask for his help, for his power to live for Jesus and like Jesus. But remember again, being humble is not being passive. It's being receptive to the work of God in us and the word of God operating in us. And it's actually exciting to live that way. It's seeing the truth about ourselves, turning to God, repenting and growing in grace and in wisdom and standing in the very presence of God because as we have drawn near to him, he has drawn near to us. It seems like James is saying to us, and I'm pleading with you tonight, loved ones, don't wait for God to humble you. Don't. Come to him in humility now. Let me say it again. Because he loves you, his humbling can be so very painful. Most of you know that I was a later life convert. I had just turned 29 years old, which means a lot of sin came before I came to Jesus. Now, it's true for everybody, but I'm aware of a lot of sin. And I remember reading the Bible. I kept reading. I had this little pocket New Testament. I still have it. I kept reading it over and over and over and over again. And there was a passage that had become so dear to me from the very first time I read it with new eyes. It's Luke chapter 18, 9 through 14. I'm going to read through it quickly. It says, Also he, Jesus, Luke writing, spoke this parable to some who trusted in themselves. I always found that very funny. That they were righteous, they thought they were good people, and despised others. Verse 10, Jesus speaking. Two men went up to the temple to pray. One a Pharisee, so one was a religious leader. The other a tax collector. Uh, culturally the lowest, most vile sinner in their culture. The, the, a traitor to his people. Collected taxes from the Jews for the Romans. Verse 11, Jesus says, The Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself. I think that's so funny. He's like, he's not praying to God. He's praying to himself. God's like, I don't hear him. Do you hear him? I don't hear him. God, I thank you that I am not like other men. This is what this religious guy is saying. God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. The, the guy standing over there, I know who he is. I fast twice a week. I give tithes or 10% of all that I possess. It's like he's saying, oh God, in case you didn't notice, I'm very religious. I'm very religious. And the tax collector, Jesus says, standing afar off, 
would not so much as raise his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. If you're not a Christian, man, that's how you get to heaven. That's how you get there. I've told this congregation many times before, my, my prayer to God when I came to this point was, I'm so sorry. That's all I could get over my lips. His prayer, God be merciful to me, a sinner. Jesus says this, verse 14, I tell you, this man, this sinful tax collector, went down to his house justified rather than the other, rather than the religious leader. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. That very day, that religious leader went home, a child of the devil. And that tax collector went home, a child of God. Friends, don't compare yourself to others. Read the Gospels and compare yourself to Jesus and you will be humbled before God. And oddly enough, instead of feeling sad, you will begin to the experience the power of humility and the Lord will lift you up. And the Lord will begin to change you from the inside out. And if you are not a follower of Jesus, if you today, like that man, will turn to God and say, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. What is that? That is to put your trust in God, put your trust in Jesus Christ because of the cross of Jesus Christ because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, you will be saved from death. Your sins will be forgiven. You will be rescued from your sins and you will be lifted up to heaven. Let's pray.